0: Alright, so let's get our Bibles out, everybody, and let's get to the book of Luke in the New Testament, and we're going to be in chapters, what are we in this week? I was going to see who knew. Alright, 6 and 7, that was your first quiz of the morning. I'm just kidding, we don't do quizzes. Maybe we should. Should we do quizzes? No, yes, no, no, yes, yes. Who's sitting in the back of the room, right? You're like, no, like, remember school? Remember those days? Um the reason I'm asking if there's a quiz, because if you're new around here, New Hope, we actually ask our church to read the Bible. Can you believe it? Like, we, we want you to be in the Bible every single week, in your own time, throughout your week, because we know that God's Word is, is His love letter to us. It's Him revealing Himself to us, and it also reveals us to us. When we get into God's Word, the Holy Spirit works in our life and changes us. And, and so we want to give you the tools, and we have those tools that we give you. So we've basically removed every excuse from your life um, that we can give you all those tools so that you can spend time with God every day. You can do it in 10 minutes of a day. How many of you have 10 minutes in a day, right? Some people be like, I just don't have 10 minutes. Baloney. You have, you have time for the things that matter to you. And I would say if you're a Christ follower, God's Word should matter to you. And you should spend that time so grab one of the reading plans if you don't have one they're on the app that I just told you about earlier um, there are also physical copies in the back of the room you can grab a copy and it gives you a straight very forward clearly how to do a devotional time how to spend that time and then it gives you a reading plan so you can read ahead of what we preach on on Sunday so this week you guys read um, six and seven and uh, and you're probably wondering what is Tim going to preach on in 40 minutes when you go through this because there's about 20 messages in here all right so um, I, I prepared a sermon for this morning, and then I feel like last night God told me, get ready, because it might be different. And so let's be ready for what God might want to say this morning. I'm going to do my best for those of you who are OCD and need the fill in the blanks. I'll still give them to you, even if I don't preach on them, okay? Um, and you can go back and read and be like, oh, that's what he meant on that fill in the blank, okay? We want you to be in God's word. We want to do this together. Um, now, for us too, we also want to do a memory. We want to hide God's word in our hearts. Last week, we learned Jesus knew the Bible, right? Um, he was fully God. He was fully man. Um, it, it, we learn from him not just as our Savior, but also our model. And we see he knew the Bible, like he studied it. He knew it. And and with with Jesus, the thing he attacked Satan with uh, wasn't a sword. It wasn't. It was the word, right? It was the Word of God. And so that's why we hide these things in our heart. So when when the waves come, attacks come, we know um, God's Word in our heart. So this is the memory verse uh, that we're going through right now. So let's read this all out loud together. Everybody ready? All right. Verse 28. He replied, blessed rather are those who hear the Word of God and obey it. We want to learn how to live a blessed life. And today we're going to continue to learn what jesus is talking about when he's saying blessed okay because this is the upside down kingdom the kingdom of heaven is upside down compared to the kingdom of this world and he's saying if we know the word and we learn the word if we do nothing with it it's pointless we won't live blessed life when we actually do what we know when we put into practice the thing that god like teaches us that's when we start to live a blessed life that's when the kingdom of heaven looks more like earth when we start living it out y'all with me and so today we're going to learn more about that as we get um, into it, okay? All right, so let's, let's, let's hop into this morning. Have, have you ever received something in your life that at first you thought was a blessing but then ended up being a curse? It, like too much of a good thing can be a bad thing. Anybody ever watched Willy Wonka on the Chocolate Factory? Yeah. Augustus Gloop, man. Okay, so Gus is going be having seen it. All of a sudden, they get into the factory, and all, they're, they're seeing a river of chocolate. Some of you, that's heaven, right? You're like, Jesus, I know some of it's going to be gold. Can some of it be chocolate, right? Because that's what he saw. And he went in, and he saw it, and he couldn't help but get in his hands in that chocolate, if you saw the scene before. And he just starts scooping it into his mouth. And, and Willy Wonka's like, uh, son, like, hello, you, you can't touch that. And then what ends up happening? he falls in, he almost drowns in the chocolate that he wanted so badly, and then he gets sucked up in a tube and taken somewhere else. Too much of a good thing can become a bad thing, right? Can become a curse. I don't know how many lottery winners get their lives ruined when they win the lottery. Actually, I do know it's 70%. 70% of all like mega millions lottery winners end up wishing they never had won because it ruins their life in the end uh, by all the things that they didn't foresee were going to come their way, whether that's... uh, friends and family show up that they didn't know about, you know, or, or, uh, or murder threats start showing up on their front door. Like, all sorts of crazy stuff happen. You think, wouldn't it be a great thing? Well, statistically, no. It'll ruin your life. That's when a curse or a blessing becomes a curse. Too much of a good thing become a very bad thing in our life, and yet there's something in us that wants it, right? There's something in us that's like, we buy that lottery ticket. Why? Because I hope I hope, I hope, I hope I'm going to win. I, I, I promise I'll give some of you. You know, like, like we just, like we try to make deals with God, and God's like, God knows better, right? God knows what we need versus what we desire and want. And the reality is for us, there is a huge difference uh, between what the world offers compared to what the kingdom of heaven can give you, right? That's our first fill in the blank. If you have your uh, worship programs, you can fill in the blank or, or just take notes at home. Online, thank you for joining us. There is a big difference in what the world offers compared to the kingdom of heaven, and yet, and yet, there's something inside of each and every single one of us that longs for things in this world. We just do. There's something inside of us that thinks there's, there's something, there's something better. There's something else, or there's there's always this kind of thing that's pushing in, like, oh, if I just, and if I just, and, I, and if I ask you the question, when you just got that, if I just, was life fulfilled at that point? No, because then there's just another just, right? And and so the world promises big, but it delivers small. And I'm telling you, the kingdom of heaven promises big and delivers big. And today we're going to see with Jesus, his teaching gets very controversial right when he starts. (laughs) And like, he doesn't pull any punches right at the very beginning when it's like, okay, his ministry starts, here we go, right? Last week, the very first scene, he offends his hometown and they want to throw him off a cliff. Good start, Jesus. By our our worldly account, they'd be like, he's not doing so hot. Um, But by the kingdom of heaven, he was doing exactly what his heavenly father wanted. And so we get into chapter 6 and 7, and we see this continuation of Jesus. A, what we talked about was, was Jesus knew who he was, meaning his identity had already been confirmed, and he was um, uh, initiated through the desert through the wilderness, through prayer and fasting, through the enemy trying to steal God's purpose out of his life, which he still does today in our life. That's what he tries to do. He tries to steal the purpose from your life. When you're initiated, you know who you are because you know who God said you are. You're a son or daughter, the Most High King. And then you are initiated saying you have what it takes to walk into God's purpose for your life. And so Jesus, that's what he's doing. He's walking, affirmed, and initiated, and now he's starting his ministry, the most powerful three years that have ever existed on this planet. I don't know. He did in three years what none of us can accomplish in a lifetime, right? And, um, and, and, and one of the gospel writers says, like, if all of the things Jesus said and did were written in a book, there wouldn't be enough books to hold it. Like, we only have these small pictures of what Jesus said and did, and even, like, seeing all of it, our minds would be blown. I'm grateful that we have the gospel writers by the, by the power of the Holy Spirit wrote all these testimonies, and we know Luke was very detailed in the testimony accounts of what happened when Jesus walked on this planet and what he taught, okay? And so I'm going to just hit some points. Um, I'm really only going to teach through three sections um, in this, but we're going to see the overall picture of chapter 6 and 7, okay? All right, we Ready? I'm just going to keep drinking that water. Okay. So, so we see right in the top of chapter 6, uh, the Jews are still, like, ticked off at this Jesus, and they're curious about who the heck he is. He's healing people. He's pushing against their traditions, and they're, like, really frustrated with Jesus and what he's teaching and what he's doing. So here's this scene in the very top of 6. He's walking with his disciples. It's, son, or it's the Sabbath. On Sabbath, they weren't supposed to do any work, and they are starting to just— pluck some wheat out of a field and eat because they are hungry. The Jews are like, whoa, 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 you're breaking the Sabbath. You can't work on the Sabbath, and they start attacking them, and Jesus makes a very bold statement. He says, listen, y'all, I'm the Lord of the Sabbath. You want to talk about Sabbath? I made it. So if you want to talk to the person who knows the rules of the Sabbath, it's me, and I'm telling you, you got it all wrong. His disciples were hungry, he was hungry, and then he tells them a story about, remember David, and for the Jews, like, David's like the big deal. Like, oh yeah, the best king we ever had, like David. We're, we know David. He said, remember when David went in the temple and his men were hungry, and they went in and they ate the bread that they weren't supposed to? That's the story he started sharing with them. Like, this has already happened once, and David was still a man after God's own heart. He said, I'm the Lord of the Sabbath. Stop trying to get me. You can't get me. And right at this moment, we see the heart of Jesus for people. And we're going to see it all through this. And we need to learn from this. We need to learn from this because right in this very first scene, Jesus puts people and compassion before tradition. And he's going to do it the whole time we we see what he's doing. He put people and compassion before tradition. He's like, I'm the Lord of the Sabbath. We're all hungry. I'm having compassion for my disciples and me. We're hungry. And so we're going to eat. We're going to eat. Too often... Uh, religious fervor puts tradition over people. I don't know how many people have been hurt by tradition and um, religious fervor and legalism. You're going to see Jesus pushes against that over and over and over again. That's the tension in the Old Testament. I still think it's the same tension today. We wrestle with this. Jesus will always put people in compassion over tradition, and especially over legalism and religious fervor, and uh, and he exposes the heart of the people he's preaching to. So right at the very beginning, that's what happens. Jesus put people in compassion for tradition. You're going to see it throughout the rest of these two chapters uh, that we get into next thing he does, he chooses 12 apostles. Now, I'm not going to teach on this, but he, he picks 12, and this is a big deal that he picks 12, because 12 is kind of the holy number. If you go back to Israel, um, Israel was formed out of 12 tribes. They were the 12 sons. They became the 12 tribes. It was a big deal. And so now what Jesus is actually doing, he's saying, that's the old covenant. I'm starting a new one with a new 12, and these 12 are Aren't the like religious leaders? These are the fishermen, the uh, you know the tax collectors. Like these are not the normal people. And so he's saying, I'm forming the new kingdom, and I'm forming the new covenant that's coming into place. So these new twelve are going to be the ones that put that into place. It's a big deal that he picked twelve, and that these twelve were not the religious leaders. The thing we see in here is that Jesus had many disciples. Do you notice the language when he talks about his disciples? It's like hundreds of people are following him as disciples. The word disciple simply means pupil. That's all it means. It means somebody who's learning from somebody else and starting to look and live like that. That was what a disciple was. So he had lots of disciples. Men and women were following Jesus as he was teaching and healing. Many disciples, but he set aside these 12 apostles to be the ones that start this thing that we call a church. And we see that's what happens, minus one, right? (laughs) Minus one, but then they put another one in his place, Judas. Judas you know, becomes the one that betrays Jesus. Satan enters into Judas. That's a scary scene right there of when that happens. And so you always see in all the lists in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and Acts, the list of the apostles, it always starts with Peter, and it always ends with Judas. Because Peter was the head guy, right? He was the leader. And then Judas was the last guy <laughs> and the one that betrayed. And, um, and so he picks the 12 apostles, and now he's leading them, and he's teaching them, and they're going to walk together. And uh, and he's going to train them in what they need to learn and how they need to walk. The process of initiation is now beginning for the twelve, right? He's already already told them their new identity. You're with me. You're an apostle. You're going to be a fisherman. That's who you are now. And now let's initiate you. Let's see what what you have. Let's see if you have what it takes. And I'm going to show you what to do as you learn how to live into the kingdom of heaven. Then we see he comes from a moment on the mountain— which is another learning point for us. Jesus often got away in a quiet place with his heavenly Father, right? We'll see that over and over again. And he comes down, and now he's ready to teach. And this is this is different. You see kind of similarities with the Sermon on the Mount. I think is where's the Sermon on the Mount? Is that Matthew? Uh, and so then you see this, and this is, is similar similar to that. But this is called the Sermon on the Plain. It's it it's a difference is because it's a different time he's preaching the very similar things in the kingdom of heaven. That's the way I see it. That's the way I read it. That's the way many scholars say these are two different messages, but so much is the same. You know how many times a preacher preaches uh, the same sermon? It depends on where he's traveling to, right? (laughs) If you got a good one, you use it, you know? And so Jesus is like, this is the kingdom of heaven. And so he starts teaching about some very important things. And, and I love the way Warren Wiersbe, who is an a, you know, awesome pastor, he, he said that these sections that he talks about is where Jesus starts teaching about possessions, about people, and the Lord. And so you kind of see these three themes come out in this sermon about how you deal with possessions and the kingdom of the world and the kingdom of heaven, how you deal with people, what does that look like to relate with people, and then what does it mean to actually have God as your Lord— and so these three sections he digs into pretty deeply. And so I want to read the very first part as he is talking about um, as he talk about possessions in the world. So, so let's hop into verse 17 uh, as we start this. All right, 17. So this is Jesus teaching. He said, he went down with them and stood on a level place. That's why it's called the Sermon on the Plain, a level place. All right. A large crowd of his disciples was there, and a great number of people from all over Judea, from Jerusalem, and from the coastal region around Tyre and Sidon, uh, who had come to hear him uh, and be healed of their diseases, right? News has gotten out. This dude, he heals. Now listen to how crazy it gets. Those uh, troubled by impure spirits were cured, and people tried to touch him because power was coming from him and healing them all. Whoa. Can you imagine the scene? I mean this is like I don't know back in the uh, early 2000s Justin Bieber and teenage girls right like oh! You know, like they're all like, we got to touch him. We got to be him. Like maybe those even older generation, the Beatles, right? And you saw the Beatles and they're climbing on cars to get to the Beatles. Like this is a crowd coming in on Jesus. And they're like coming in because they are seeing powers coming out of him. And people are physically being healed. Impure spirits being cast out just because of his presence and his touch. Wow. So now you think the apostles, they're just starting this with him, and they're like, what is going on? You know, like some of them are like, we're trying to like be the bodyguards, and we're trying to be like protecting him, and like people are coming too close, and he's trying to teach, and they're like, I got to touch him, I got to get healed. Like this isn't like a line of people, may I be healed? It's like, no. And the people tried to touch him because powers coming out of him. You think he'd be annoyed, but he wasn't. With people, he was always full of Compassion So rejoice in that day and leap for joy because great is your reward in heaven for that is how their ancestors treated the prophets. Do you hear what he did? He, he, he's, he's not friendly to the Jews, to these Jewish leaders. He's like, he's like, you should be okay, especially if the Jewish leaders are the ones oppressing you because that's what they did to the prophets in the Old Testament. They killed the prophets in the Old Testament. Just like they wanted to do with Jesus, throw him off a cliff, that's what they did with the prophets in the Old Testament. They're like... They're trying to bring a word and like, boo, boo. But then he flips the script. So those those who are opposite. But woe to you who are fed now, for you will go hungry. Woe to you who laugh now, for you will mourn and weep. Woe to you when everyone speaks well of you, for that is how their ancestors treated the false prophets. (laughs) He's like, you love the people that tickled your ear and said what you wanted them to say. So he's just going right at it, right here at the very beginning. He starts painting this picture of the kingdom of this world and the kingdom of heaven and the differences between the two. Now, we read these passages, and it doesn't make sense, right? Blessed are those who are poor. That is not what the world tells you, is it? It says, woe to you who are poor. Good luck. Like, that's what the world says. Or just, would you... Get a job, or would you start doing something productive with your life? Or, like, it's more judgment towards the poor, not like, blessed are you who are poor. He said, that's not how the kingdom of heaven works. So, he says, blessed are the, ha-, or happy. The, the translation is like, happy are, right? Happy are the poor, hungry, weary, and persecuted. Do you know why he says happy? Because in the kingdom of heaven, they're not poor. They have heaven to look forward to. They'll be satisfied. They will laugh in the presence and they'll laugh and be entertained and enjoy the presence of Jesus. I mean, they have a different feast to be looking forward to than the one that they can have now. Because they're looking towards heaven. But woe to you who are rich, full, laugh and entertained and accepted by everyone in this world. Because that means you've sold out to this world. And you've already received all that is due to you in this world, and you're going to miss out on the blessings in the world to come. That's what he's saying: Rich, full, laugh and entertained and accepted by everyone is actually poor, spiritually, hungry, and you're going to be sad without heaven, rejected by God. That's the difference of the kingdom of this world, what it offers you in the kingdom of heaven. And Jesus, right from the get-go, is saying, "Boop, let's flip the script. These are challenging words, aren't they? These are very challenging words, especially for Americans. Because the American dream is not poor, hungry. like those, That's not the American dream, and yet that's heaven's dream? Like Now, I, I need you to hear very clearly. He's not saying in order to be spiritual, you need to be poor, always hungry, always distressed, always... That's not what he's saying. He is painting a picture, though, that... If you are in this world, you have something way more to look forward to. Because if you have Jesus, you have heaven. But if you have the world, all you have is the world, and you miss out on heaven. Uh, You can write this down. Heaven is, is our home as Christ followers. This world is temporary. So I would say choose your kingdom wisely. He's talking about possessions, right? He's talking about, like, how we, how we live in this earth and how we live on this planet and what, what we want and desire versus what God wants and desires in our life. You can be a Christian, and you can be, you can be physically wealthy. Um, because I've seen, like, godly Christian men and women use their wealth to build God's kingdom, Right? They're not in it for greed's sake. They're not in it to grow and grow and get and get and be fully satisfied with what they have in this world. God blesses some people that way so they can live generously, and they do. So they're not, it's not like, well, you decided to get rich, so no longer you're going to heaven. Because I've also seen very poor people be extremely greedy. That their heart is actually, I want something, I want more, I want this, I want that. And then they'll even get to the point where they start stealing to get it. He's not talking about the physical issues here. He's talking about the heart. Where is your heart? Is it in trying to pursue the things of this world? Because I'm telling you, it'll fail you over and over and over again. Or is your heart focused on what you get to get in heaven? That you get more in the the presence of Jesus and God than you will ever get with anything you will ever have in this world as you live. That's why he says happy are. Happy are. Because when you find your contentment in God, you find your happiness in God. When you find your contentment in the earth, you will never be content. That's life. So Jesus knew exactly what he was saying, and he was pointing his finger at the religious when he was saying this. He said, you say you're religious, but you're actually only wanting this world. You're eating and you're taking from the poor to actually feed yourselves. And that's what many of the priests were doing. They were living rich and wealthy, while the poor, they were oppressing and abusing. That's not the kingdom of heaven. If you're rich and wealthy, you bless the poor. You bless those around you. You use everything open-handedly. Then he continues to really challenge them because, um, because then he starts talking about how you relate with people. So that's how you relate with stuff. Is your heart sold on stuff, and are you trying to find contentment in that, or are you trying to find your contentment in heaven, in eternity, in Christ alone? And then he says, oh, let's, let's, let's make it a little bit easier. You know how, like, um, you treat bad people in your life, or you think about evil people? I want you to love them. What? You got to be kidding me. You don't know what they did, Jesus. You don't know how they hurt me. You don't know what they said about me behind my back. You don't know how they stabbed me in my back. You don't know what they did. Yeah, he does. Because they're doing it to him too. And they were trying to do it to him the entire time he walked this planet. And they couldn't get him until he allowed them to in the very end. See, he knows what it's like to have enemies. Um, and he says, you know what? Whenever you hate your enemies... You know how much energy it takes to hate somebody? It takes a lot of energy. It creates a lot of distraction. It, it steals from your soul. it steals from your emotional life. it steals from other relationships that, are, that could be healthy, but they're not because you're so ticked off of that person, right? And so it builds roots of bitterness and all sorts of ugly things. And God knows that about us. He made us. He knows humanity. He knows how we operate. He says, "Do you want know to be better? Why don't you just love them?" Because when you love them and show grace to them, um, he, it, later on in another passage, it's like, it's like pouring burning coals over them because it ticks them off even more. Because they're like, why are you mad at me? I, Jesus tells me I'm not supposed to. It doesn't mean I need to be close to you. It doesn't mean that we need to be best friends. You know, it, it means I can create healthy boundaries if you're being a jerk to me, but I'm not going to choose to hold those things against you. I'm going to choose love over hate. So he says, so love your enemies. And, um, and oh yeah, that whole like judging thing, because now he's talking to religious people because that's all they did. They judged all the people that didn't do what they did, didn't look like they did, didn't wear like the spiritual things that they wore. Didn't, they, they didn't do all that stuff. And so they would look down and they would judge all the other people because they weren't as good as they were. And so in that judgment, he says, who are you? When, why would you judge another person without first looking at yourself? And so that's that whole, like, why look at the speck in somebody else's eye when you have a daggum log poking out of yours? He says, don't judge other people. How about you judge yourself and deal with you first? Ooh. Right? And yet we still wrestle. These, like, God's Word is as relevant to then as it is today. Amen? Like he like the condition of the human heart has not changed. From generation to generation to generation, sin is still sin, and it still has control over our hearts and lives as as much as we let it, right? And that's what he's saying. Don't judge. Take care of your own sin. Make your own heart right. You be right with God. And then when you see somebody else sinning, you gently lead them back to God. You're not there to be like boom. Because then you become the enemy that they have to love, right? If you're the attacker and always looking at other people. I know there's people that every sermon they hear, they think about, I know who this is for. You know anybody like that? If you don't, it might be you, right? When it's like, what is this sermon for me, right? If you're always thinking about somebody else, you might have a judgmental spirit. If you think about how this can help somebody else or somebody else needs to hear this thing or, or I need to make sure so-and-so hears this. Like, no, why do you need to hear it? Jesus, he does not pull any punches. He goes right to the heart and he says, love your enemies, don't judge, take care of your own sin. And then he paints a picture of, of fruit and trees, right? He's like, like a good plant produces good fruit. A bad plant produces bad fruit. And he says, for the mouth speaks what the heart is full of. So whatever's coming out of you is in there. Right? Have you ever heard a kid say something or, or <laughs> at parent-teacher conferences when a parent comes in and the kid's been a jerk in class and the teacher has to talk to the, the parent and says, just so you know, your child said this and this and this. And, and that wasn't right and he got in trouble for it. And then like the parent goes, oh, he didn't really mean it. Baloney, right? Because what's in there comes out here. You'll prove your life by what you say, right? And, and so he's like, if it's good coming out, that means there's a good heart. There's good things happening inside of you. If it's bad constantly coming out, if it's judgmental, if it's bitter, if it's whatever, then there's some bad, there's, there's some bad sin. There's some bad bitterness. There's, there's something that's in you that's pouring something bad out of you. He says, don't do that. Prove your life by living a good life. Is this easy? Because you guys are being really quiet. So I know whenever we actually hear the words of Jesus, what we want to hear is, I love you. You're good. You're beautiful. But sometimes he says to us, you're ugly. There's something ugly in there. There's something wrong inside of you. And it's okay for him to say that. It's okay for the Holy Spirit to like work in our hearts and be like, That doesn't look like me. And I love you too much to allow that to stay. Because I know where that goes if you let it stay. I know what you will do in relationship with other people if you let that thing stay. I know how it will affect your own soul if you let that stay. He loves us too much to let it stay. And so he'll work on us. He will convict us when conviction needs to be brought. And then he brings the Holy Spirit to lead us and I'm telling you, you need other people in your life in that process too. That's why we have the church. <laughs> That's why we need each other. Because there's also things we can't see in our, our life that big godly people do see and want to say, I, I see it. How me walk with you. So you can be freed from it. Because then he doesn't he continues to not pull any punches as he continues in the sermon. Because then he talks about, he's talking about possessions. Are you living for the world or heaven? And then he talks about people. Are you loving or are you a jerk? Right? <laughs> like, are you are you judgmental or are you looking at your own sin? Are you are you good fruit or are you bad fruit? Um, and, and so he's like just pulling out no punches. And then he he goes right to the whole Lord thing. Um, and he's talking to the religious and he's talking to the sinners. He's talking to everybody. And he goes right to the Lord thing in verse forty six. And he asks a question, and this is what he says. He says, why do you call me Lord, Lord? It's a great question, right? He's like, why do you call me Lord, Lord, and do not do what I say? Could you let up a little bit, Jesus? He's like, no, I didn't come to let up. I came to bring heaven to earth. And he's about to bring it. And then he keeps going. He says, As for everyone who comes to me and hears my words and puts them into practice, I will show you what they are like. And then he gives a word picture. He says, They are like a man building a house who dug down deep and laid the foundation on rock. When a flood came, the torrent struck that house but could not shake it because it was well built. This is the whole, Blessed are those who hear my word and do it, right? He's like, if you set your foundation on the rock of Jesus Christ, on the words and then living in them and obedience, when you do that, you're placing your life on a solid foundation. Because in this life, the waves are coming. In this life, the storms are going to be breaking over your head. The waves will get deep. The wind will hurt. The hail will fall. He says, when that happens, it matters where your foundation is. Let's keep reading. Because then he says, but the one who hears my words and does not put them into practice is like a man who built a house on the ground without a foundation. The moment the torrent struck that house, it collapsed, and its destruction was complete. He's like, that's complete destruction. If you listen to the word, do nothing with it. I want to show you some pictures, okay, and and show you a couple of videos, because uh, there was a hurricane, you know, not too long ago, and um, and you think, man, that hurricane brought destruction, didn't it? And it's interesting, because you'd see, like, one house, nothing, perfect, and then all the houses around, completely destroyed, you're like, whoa, what's the difference there? Um, There was actually, before the hurricane, last May, there was a storm that hit um, North Carolina and South Carolina, and hit the Outer Banks area, and it was just a storm, like it wasn't a hurricane, it wasn't anything. And it's interesting because I found this video of a house that was built right on the beach. This is a nice house. It's been a nice house on the beach in the Outer Banks. I think it was valued like $380,000 on this property. Um, but in this storm, I want you to watch this. And we can leave the lights up. So watch. Those waves kept coming and kept coming. And now it's a houseboat. But even then, when those waves keep coming, watch what happens to the house, wave after wave after wave. At the very end, you'll see the whole front end of this house just begins to disappear. Wave after wave, you see, just falling apart. This is the image that Jesus has given. If you build your life on a sandy foundation, if you build your life on things that really don't matter, if you're only living for this kingdom in this world, and, and even if you know Jesus' words but don't do them, that's the way you're building your life. The storm's going to come. The thing with that house, it said it, it wasn't a hurricane. It said it's just a storm that wouldn't let up. The waves just kind of kept coming one after another, <clears throat> one after another. The wind kept blowing, and, the, and, and for days for some of us, that is our life. When rough times come, it's not like a hurricane, boom, and then it's gone. It's kind of wave after wave after wave after wave of difficulty after difficulty. And I'm telling you, if you've built your house and your spiritual foundation on anything other than Jesus, He says the destruction will be complete, right? I want to show you a different picture. Here's another video of something that was built, but it was actually built in the ocean. Go ahead and <clears throat> this is a lighthouse off the coast of France. Okay? And it's literally, I don't know how many miles away from coast. The coastline's behind us, obviously, in the shot. But, but you see these waves kind of hitting this lighthouse. When they build this enemy, it is down to the solid of the solid in that sea. Because it has stood for like hundreds and hundreds of years, this, this lighthouse stood. And, uh, and could you imagine being the lighthouse keeper? <laughs> because sometimes the waves get really big. Like, this this is um, off the coast in, in, in the winter. These waves and these just winds. And this is just constant. It's not even a storm. This is just how the sea looks in this moment. And if you don't understand how big this thing is, uh, there's a, there was a picture taken. And, uh, and in this picture, um, this was a very famous picture that was taken. In, and, um, and you can see the door open. Let me, let me show you a little bit better. See that? That's a guy standing with the door open at the bottom And you see the wave is about to take him out, right? Now, this picture, just so you know, this photo, it was taken by a guy in a helicopter. He didn't know anybody it was in the lighthouse. And, uh, and this is why it became like a world-famous photo, because he was just in helicopter. He was taking photos, and all of a sudden, he sees this guy come out. and He's like, oh, my gosh, because the guy was waiting for somebody to come save him from the storm. <laughs> and he's thinking, is this my helicopter? And he opens the door, and boom, this wave comes. And, and like a lot of people thought, he died right after that, right? Like, like, and he didn't. He, cl- he closed the door right away when that wave came around. But this picture is crazy, isn't it? Now, let me ask you a question, which building would you rather be in, in the midst of a storm? The one that just had kind of relentless waves, just kept coming and coming, and got destroyed, built on the sand, or one that can, can deal with a seven-story wave that's down in the solid rock foundation, even in the middle of ocean, and still standing? Where would you want to be? Lighthouse, Right? When we think about our life, Jesus is pulling no punches. He's saying, you choose. You choose. Do you want to be with Jesus or do you want to be with the world? Which one? The world is only going to offer you so much. If you build your rock on Jesus, if you choose to be a disciple of Christ, You can have a firm foundation when those waves come. You can stand assured he is with you in the storm. You put into practice his word, he will walk with you in the storm. Because Jesus, just so you know, this is what he's saying, Jesus isn't looking for fans. When he was walking this planet, there were a lot of fans that were showing up in crowds because they wanted to touch this guy and get healed. But whenever he taught the difficult things, they left and went back home. He's not looking for fans He's looking for disciples who will walk in obedience, people who see His teaching and then start living it out. For here at New Hope, when we we say disciple, this is what we mean. A disciple is somebody who is surrendered to God, meaning you've given your life fully to God. You've entrusted Him. He is your heavenly Father. Changed by the Holy Spirit, meaning you're on that process of initiation. Proving you have what it takes to live into God's purpose and the Holy Spirit taking the crap out of your life and giving you the blessings in God's presence. That's what the Holy Spirit does so that you can, in turn, live like Jesus. You're surrendered to God, changed by the Holy Spirit, living like Jesus. That's what he's looking for. He doesn't need fans. Fan is like the one that listened and said, that's, that's a neat idea. But their foundation wasn't in Christ a disciple is one that says, I'm setting my foundation in Jesus alone. I'm setting my foundation in Jesus alone. Now, i got to hurry up and finish. Because then we see he starts relating with people, and it's so cool who he liked and enjoyed hanging out with. Because then we see a centurion who was a Roman soldier who led like legions of other soldiers. like He's like one of the head dog soldiers, like right? a centurion. And things we see in the centurion's they were actually, like, favored by Christ. <laughs> and even in the end, when they're hanging him on the cross, he says, forgive them, they don't know what they're doing. And so here's the centurion, and he, his servant's sick, and the centurion comes and says, you don't have to come to my house, I'm not worthy for you in my house, just say the word, and I know he'll be healed. And then Jesus said, I've never seen faith like this. This is a heathen, like, this is not a Jew. <laughs> and then he sees a widow who has lost her husband at some point and now lost her son, He's dead in a box. And they're mourning and carrying him up the street. And Jesus says, no, he's not dead. He raises her son back to life. Do you see how Jesus leads with compassion in people first? You'll see it over and over again. You're going to see it in this very last story that I'm going to read very quickly. We see a scene when John the Baptist's messengers show up. And now they, they're asking, you know, John's wondering, are you actually the Savior? Are you the one that we've been waiting for? And for a lot of scholars, that's confusing because, like, John came to prepare the way of the Messiah. And he even said, here he is, the one that comes. I'm not worthy to, like, clean his feet and all that kind of stuff. But in this moment, at this point of what Jesus is doing, like, John, where's John? He's in prison. He's in jail. I don't know if you've ever had a hard time and then start wondering about God and things. This is the humanity of John. And he's like, I, I'm not there with him. I don't see what Jesus is doing. At like, I'm going to send my messengers. Can you go make sure? Because I don't know what's going on. And they, so he says, send word back to him. The lame are walking. The blind are getting healed. He's like, and he, he's basically quoting Isaiah. And he's saying, so go tell him, yes, the prophecies are coming true, to reassure John. And then we get to this scene in Luke 7, and it's what I'm going to finish up with as we head towards communion. And so let me read this really quick okay? And, 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 um, and see what Jesus does in the scene. So when one of the Pharisees invited Jesus to have dinner with him, he went to the Pharisee's house and reclined at the table. A woman in that town who lived a sinful life learned that Jesus was eating at the Pharisee's house. So she came there with an alabaster jar of perfume. So we see some characters on the scene. You see later on that his name is Simon, and this isn't Simon Peter, okay? This is just a, 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 um, a Pharisee named Simon, a religious leader. Um, and he said reclined at the table because the table would actually be on the ground. That's how they would do it, and they'd actually like lean and recline at it and just kind of eat and talk and hang out. And it was probably in a communal place of this guy's house. He was probably wealthy and had a courtyard, and they were probably eating in the courtyard. And as people walked by, they could look in the door and see what's going on, right? And so now this woman, a sinful woman, shows up and sneaks in the door. And is in the presence of all of them, and she's bringing this alabaster jar of perfume, which would have been like a, like um, uh, uh, what's the word, like a dowry, you know, for marriage. Like it, it would have been a very expensive thing for her to have that. As she stood behind him and at his feet, she was weeping. She began to wet his feet with her tears, then she wiped them with her hair, kissed them, and poured perf- perfume on them. When the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, he's talking to himself here, if this man were a prophet, he would know who is touching him and what kind of woman she is, that she is a sinner. What did did Jesus teach on in the Sermon on the (laughs) plane? Like, why are you judging other people without looking at the plank in your own eye, Right? So Jesus answered him, even though he was talking to himself, because Jesus knew. He says, Simon, I have something to tell you. Tell me, teacher. Famous last words. Um, <laughs> tell me, teacher, he said. Simon replied, um, I suppose the one... Oh, wait. Oh, no. I skipped a bunch. Uh, is it out of order? All right. So, so Jesus, um, you know, he's, he's, he says... A story, And he says, you know, two, two people owed a master money, right? And one of them owed like 50 bucks, the other like, you know, $500,000. Doesn't matter the number. And he said they couldn't pay off their debt, and so both of them were forgiven the debt. And, uh, and so he asked Simon, now he says, you know, which one do you think was more relieved? Uh, I suppose the one who had the bigger debt forgiven, you have judged correctly, Jesus said, Then he turned toward the woman and said to Simon, Do you see this woman? I came into your house. You did not give me any water for my feet. Because that was tradition. There would be a servant there to wash the feet of those that entered into the house. He said, You didn't offer me that. But she wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You did not give me a kiss. But this woman, from the time I entered, has not stopped kissing my feet. You did not put oil on my head. And she poured perfume on my feet. Therefore I tell you, her many sins have been forgiven as her great love has shown. But whoever has been forgiven little, loves little. Then Jesus said to her, Your sins are forgiven. Whoa. Simon was probably pretty ticked off and confused at this moment. The other guests began to say among themselves, Who is this who can even forgive sins? Jesus said to the woman, Your faith, say this with me, Your faith has saved you. Go in peace. Compassion. This is Jesus. He's looking at the religious, and he's saying, you guys don't get it. And he's looking at the sinner and says, she gets it. Those who have been forgiven much love Jesus much because of the weight of what they've been forgiven of and the freedom from it is so much greater than those that thought they didn't need forgiveness forgive us all that much. See, so we see two characteristics at play here, and the first one is pride. Simon was proud. <clears throat> Who is this? The people were proud. Pride will always equal separation from God. You see it from the Old Testament to the New Testament. Pride is in opposition to our Heavenly Father, but humility is if you act in humility, you receive forgiveness, grace, and love. The Jews were proud of their external holiness, of what they looked like, what they did, and how they lived, but, and they were disgusted by sinners, where Jesus was quite the opposite. Jesus invited sinners and then called them to in, internal holiness. He says, I forgive you, now go in peace. Others, he says sin no more. He's like, now that you've been forgiven much, now go live and love much, and don't keep going back to the sin that you were at. It's not like you're forgiven, and now just go keep sinning, and go keep doing whatever you want. Listen, when you've been forgiven like that, you don't want to go back to what you were at, right? This is what it says in James 4, verse 6. It says, but he gives a greater grace— God is a God of grace. Therefore it says, God is opposed to the proud, but gives what? Grace to the humble. Today we are going to be celebrating communion. A- and I need you to understand that our Savior could have come down in all of the uh, in, in all boldness. He could have come um, with all authority. He could have come and, and just shut this thing down. He's going to come with with the, in, in the throne of judgment. He could have if that was God's plan. But even the Savior of the world came humbly. He came to serve to the point of even dying on the cross for our sins. That's what Jesus did. So not only did He preach it, He lived it, He did it, and He completed it and finished it. Uh, today, uh, our challenge is twofold. One, if you are proud If you're wondering, like, man, I haven't felt God, and God hasn't been doing stuff in me, I haven't felt Him in my life, it might be because you've got some pride bubbled up inside of you. And there's been opposition between you and God because you're not willing to let Him change some things in your heart and life. So my question to the Christians in the room, where has pride created opposition between you and God? Where is it? Today we get to choose what foundation we put our life on. Today we get to choose if we're gonna just be fans of this dude Jesus, or if we just be fans of going to church, or is this is a good idea, or are we gonna be true disciples, surrender to God, changed by the Holy Spirit, living and looking like Jesus more and more every day? You get to choose. That's the free will part of this. We all get to choose. I'm hoping that we choose to live in God's love. We get to to, to walk in obedience to His Word. We let Him convict us where we need conviction. Let Him heal us where we need healing. Let Him free us where we're slaves to things. I just want to take some time to respond. We're going a little long, but um, let me pray, and we'll move into this time of communion. God, thank you for your word, and thank you that it does not return void. You, your purpose is is um, being lived out right now in your word, and and thank you for giving me the strength to preach uh, right now. Uh, um, I, I pray, God, for those of us in this room that don't know you. Uh, our our foundation is in this world, and 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 we're trying our best just to be good people, thinking that gets us to heaven. Um, I pray that right now you'd show them the truth. The truth is. We are all the sinful woman at the feet of Jesus. That's who we are in that story. We're all sinful. We're all broken. We cannot live perfect, and we cannot be good enough to get to heaven. Help us to bow before you and at the foot of the cross this morning. Listen, if that's you this morning, before you take me, if you need Christ, I'm gonna say pray right this very second and you invite Him in and you humbly come before Him and, and ask Him to heal, forgive, and move in your life. And so if that's you, just pray with me right now. you just say, God, I believe you sent your son Jesus to die on the cross for my sins. I want to just be at the foot of the cross of Jesus and thank you for the sacrifice. I ask for your forgiveness, God, now and forever, and I want your Holy Spirit to start changing me from inside out so I can look more like you and more like heaven. And I pray right now that you just enter into my life and free me, forgive me, save me. I want to be yours now and forever. And I say thank you in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. If that's you this morning, and for anybody